have to look at um, the history of Africa and Africana people. The Africans in Africa need to tell this story to help their, the Africans that are outside of Africa to have a better understanding of what is happening or what has happened in Africa. Because the story again is deep. It's not as simple as just numbers. And so I think it's important to uh, collaborate. And I noticed that, you know, in some circles we have uh, continental African universities collaborating uh, with institutes here in the United States, just in different places. Um, but I think it's, it's vitally important and that, uh, that that collaboration will help to kind of bridge the gaps you know, that exists. Hi, I'm Obehi Ewan, the author of the storytelling series for small businesses and content creators. In Obehi Podcast, we talk about the power of your story, your narrative, and why you should own your voice. Whether you are a small business owner, a content entrepreneur, or you simply want to build your influence, storytelling is probably going to be your best instrument to connect with your audience. So join the awakened few who are owning their voices. Now let's get started with today's episode. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a privilege to be on your podcast. Um, my name is Dr. Eva Bowler. I'm an assistant professor at California State Long Beach. I'm in Long Beach, California, um, in the Department of Africana Studies. I just finished my first full, full year. Uh, it, was, it was a wonderful experience. I'm so grateful to be there. Um, some really great colleagues. Um, I finished my PhD at Temple University in the Department of Africana Studies uh, in December of 2021. Um, and then, so kind of had like a long uh, academic journey. I originally got my master's at uh, Temple in 2006 in Af when the department was called African-American studies. Um, then subsequently got a master's in English from Arcadia University in Glenside, PA. Um, worked in uh, social services for about 15 and a half years. So I was working and uh, going to school at the same time. Um, so it took me a while to get where I'm at, but I finally arrived and I'm grateful to be at this point in my journey. That's interesting. That is fantastic. All right. So we're talking about uh, history. We're talking about story today. So I think we'll first of all take a, a step backward to know you a bit. Of course, that is how we set up this uh, podcast. You know, we really are passionate about our background. So at least we know the individual who is talking. Uh, then we can know also what they're doing. So tell me a bit about your background, your adolescent years. Where do you remember about your childhood growing up? So I'm originally from Detroit, uh, Michigan. Um, so just growing up in Detroit, uh, my, my primarily my uh, family is from the American South. So just having that uh, Midwest upbringing, um, but then also having that Southern influence. Uh, and you know, a lot of times in the American South, they uh, family is central. So 
having this extended family of cousins and and older cousins who are like aunts and uncles kind of just really helped frame my background. Um, and then also just really having this value of, um, and I think it really kind of played a role into my studies, uh, really valuing who I am or who uh, we are as African descended people. So a lot of that culture um, played a role, a lot of uh, just that the Southern culture really plays, really values um, Blackness, um, being proud of being who you are. And so I just kind of remember anecdotally as a child wanting Barbie dolls. It's funny, the new Barbie movie's out, but wanting Barbie dolls. And my parents always made sure that I had Black Barbies. Any doll that I had, they tried to uh, make sure I had a Black doll. So just kind of really seeing that um, image of uh, Blackness being beautiful. Um, and so it's kind of, I think just kind of as I look back on that, they kind of really framed uh, just kind of who I kind of became as a, a studier of African-American history and um, Africana studies. Thank you so much for that. that that's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, was there anything that sort of uh, point you towards uh, becoming um, uh, an academia, uh, be interested in story? So I'm trying to understand if there is anything that could have pointed you to that direction or is it a choice that you make out of a research or something like that? So I think one thing I think as I kind of look back on my journey, I think uh, my undergraduate time. So I got a, a undergraduate degree at Michigan State University, and so during that time, I originally wanted to be a lawyer. So it's funny, like being an academic, studying African studies at that point really wasn't on my radar. Um, I did take quite a few courses in undergrad, African American history. Um, African American uh, vernacular English, uh, which I took a course with uh, Dr. Geneva Smitherman. And I think really at that point, it kind of sparked my more of my interest. Um, but I still was on this idea of wanting to be a lawyer. Um, but when I took the law school admission test, I didn't do well enough uh, to do that. So I kind of had to redirect my, my life. And so just kind of thinking up a plan, I applied for the master's in um, African-American studies at Temple and got in. And so I kind of think that time at Michigan State, taking a few of those classes kind of started that. Um, but then just having to kind of redirect what I wanted to do kind of really solidified that um, one thing that I thought I was supposed to do wasn't really the plan for my life. And so it just kind of really sparked this idea of um, what to do next and becoming an uh, Africologist and getting this uh, African American studies master's. And it's funny because I really hadn't at that point after I got my master's thought of getting a PhD. Um, but I think just kind of what I've learned in those years prior to starting my PhD kind of really set the tone for where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, now, of course, this is what you do now. This is where you are now. You, you've journeyed, you move. Uh, we can see your trajectory, where you're coming from. Uh, but tell me a bit about this. What do you like about African um, African studies? What, what is interesting to you? What is passionate for you? What do you like about it? What is sort of uh, moving you forward uh, in what you are doing today? There's so much that I can say that I like about it, but I think just as an African-descended people, just really having an uh, African-descended person, just really having that grounding in um, the value of African uh, and by extension, African-American studies, uh, 
African Caribbean studies, just the, the value of African people, the value of the history, the culture, the literature. I think just really just having that value of everything related to um, African descended people. And just, um, I think, and I just kind of will we'll kind of talk about this too, along with my own personal journey of kind of finding out uh, a little bit more about my African ancestry, been doing a lot of genealogical research, uh, DNA testing. And so I think coupled with that, um, I've just gained this greater appreciation of uh, what it means to be a person of African descent. And so I think um, just kind of looking at where I'm at right now, I really feel at home in um, Africana studies because it's kind of really helped me to appreciate who I am as a person of African descent. So it's just so much that I uh, can say that I, I like about it and, and just really feel at home in this space. And I'm thinking that there are some people out there who do not understand what is um, what is the importance. Why should we care about uh, African studies? Uh, okay, now let's say we are concentrating on African diaspora because that is the that is the target in this podcast. Uh, they might be in Canada, they might be in US, they might be in UK, they might be in other part of the European country, or maybe in China. It doesn't matter as long as we are African descent. Uh, we are the target of this conversation. Why should they care about what you are doing? Why should they care about African study? Why should they study their history? I think just simply African studies um, and the, pe- the study of people of African descent is a study of humanity. You know, we all know uh, humanity began in Africa. And so a lot of times people will, you know, to that point say, well, that's just their history, but African studies and African history is the history of humanity. If you think about the contributions of people of African descent to the uh, totality of um, humanity, you can't isolate um, the history of African people and say that it's just their or our history. It's It belongs to everyone um, because African people have played such an important role. And I think really in order to understand um, humanity, you have to look at um, the history of Africa and Africana people. All right. Thank you so much for that. And of course, for people of African descent, it becomes uh, primarily more important again because um, we understand that we are in a game. This game that we are playing, um, it is important that we know a bit about the rule. Uh, to know the rule, we need to know where we are coming from. And of course, to call back again to uh, the, the story and the history and what has been before us. I remember one time I was interviewing uh, a U.S. historian and he was telling me that when I want to tell my son about a history, because of course I was telling him, hey, define for me, what do you mean by history? And he was telling me, well, I would tell my son, no, I would tell my grandson that uh, my grandpa came before me, uh, so I come before you. So for you to know who you are, you're going to have to learn about me. And uh, Now, you are learning about me, you are learning about you. So it's sort of, it's a web that is very uh complicated sometimes, but it's absolutely important. We must understand that by learning about history, we're actually learning about us. Because if we don't know our history, therefore we don't know where we are coming from, then we are lost. And when we are lost, a lot of uh, danger that are with us because then we can even be at a danger to ourselves. It looks like someone who is having a, uh, a, a nuclear bomb and you don't know the consequence of what you are holding. 
So it means you can make it explode anytime <laughs> because you don't know what you are holding, no? Um, anyway, let me let me put the question like this so that we can sort of zero it down a bit. Which area are you concentrating on in African studies? Sort of take us down to a line that you are focusing on mainly. Couple interests, I think. So I guess I can kind of start with kind of what I my dissertation topic was and how I'm kind of really expanding on that. And then kind of uh, some emerging uh, things that I'm interested in. So I guess I'll say like, so at Temple um, for my dissertation topic, I did an Afrocentric analysis of uh, the philosophies of Howard Thurman. So if you're not sure who Howard Thurman was, he was a uh, theologian, uh, philosopher, mystic, and a kind of just really this uh, prominent figure in the civil rights movement in terms of how he influenced Martin Luther King and James Farmer um, and pretty much the entirety of the, the early civil rights movement with his whole ideas of nonviolent activism. So um, kind of with that um, and just kind of expanding on what I'm looking at now, I really am interested on these this idea of intellectual activism, um, intellectual histories. So it's kind of where I'm focusing at now, but what I'm doing now is just kind of looking at also the ways in which um, women have contributed to that. So just kind of some current research that I'm looking at, I'm looking at uh, Dr. Sadie Tanner Moselle Alexander, who was the second African-American woman to get a PhD and the first uh, African-American woman to earn a PhD from UPenn and also the first uh, African-American woman to get a law degree from UPenn. And so she, uh, similar to Thurman, was uh, really involved in the civil rights movement. She worked on uh, President Harry Truman's commission uh, to secure these rights. And so the areas that I'm really looking at right now is this whole idea of intellectual activism, intellectual history, um, how figures such as Thurman and Alexander really used um, their intellect, their voice in order to uh, kind of speak out against the injustice this is facing African-American people, then also to provide uh, solutions. I keep that in mind. Now, when you say African studies, are you um, looking at African diaspora or looking at African in general sense? Uh, in this sense, you're looking at African in Africa. Can you sort of help me understand that part? So when I say African studies, so African studies as a whole really encompasses the whole diaspora. Um, for my specific research, I, I tend to focus more on African-American studies. I think it's important to note that you really can't look at African-American studies without looking at um, the diaspora and looking at the continent. So just kind of going back to my dissertation and looking at this whole idea of uh, analyzing Howard Thurman's work uh, Afrocentrically, I pulled in uh, ethical concepts such as my, um, which is ancient uh, comedic ethics. And so um, while I really tend to focus on elements of African-American studies, I do have these elements of uh, African studies or African elements because you really can't uh, properly look at African-American studies, in my opinion, without uh, examining Africa because it all ties back to Africa in some sense. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, that is interesting now. Now, how do you examine Africa? Okay, now, all right. You see, the other day I was uh, doing a, uh, an interview relating to, um, I think it was uh, Web Du Bois. 
Okay, we talk of Marco Gavi. Then, of course, we talk also also another important uh, personality of African descent. They were talking about African study. Now we were saying, but who is teaching Africans about Africa? Uh, how what material are we using? Because then they become very interested. Because now we see where the boy, we see the evolution of uh, of him as a person, the kind of opinion that he was having when he was much younger, uh, a younger scholar, and the the opinion that they have when he became more mature, and of course in his later years, uh, we can see how people grow. No, um, so it becomes very interesting for me in those area in trying to understand. Uh, what material are we using to study our history? So in this sense, I'm trying to ask you, uh, when you want to understand Africa as a member of African diaspora, because you understand that your ancestry are coming from Africa, so you don't have any doubt about that. But when you want to talk to your students, when you want to analyze this, uh, these stories, this trajectory, what material do you use? So yeah, that's a great question. So what I like to use, so for example, I guess I can give an example. So I'm working on, just working on some uh, work on Africana womanism, and then also kind of pulling into the discussion, um, just this work from African women. And so what I try to do is if I'm looking at Africa, I'm trying to look at or use work by African scholars. So um, looking at some of the ways in which uh, elements of African womanism may be present in the works of uh, African female writers, for example. Um, when I looked at, uh, looking at Thurman in terms of Afrocentricity and pulling in Ma'at, actually getting uh, texts that are uh, focused, you know, focused really in Africa. So I guess to answer that question, what I'm really wanting to look at is if I'm examining Africa, I try to get African sources, because if you this if we kind of know the history, a lot of what's been put out about Africa has been uh, Eurocentric sources and it's been biased. And so I think it's important if you're looking at Africa to uh, do so from um, African sources as much as possible. Mm -hmm. All right. I don't know how much you want to go in that, but also it also depends on how much we want to go. I don't know how much we really want to go about Africa in trying to understand the history of Africa, because you just said before in your previous explanation that uh, African, of course, we are looking at the birthplace of humanity, as which means that we are not going to be able to see the beginning of our history as a people. We can see the beginning of European history, for example. We can see the beginning of Chinese history. We can see the beginning of uh, or maybe uh, ancient American history, but we cannot see the beginning of African history because that is the birthplace of humanity. It has been there before uh, the, the, our timeline. Okay, so how far are we supposed to go in order for us to establish what we want to say or what we want to talk about as history? That's a good question. So I think, yes, it, it is kind of hard, like you, like you said, because, um, you know, you have European history go further, sometimes further back. So I think, you know, I think honestly, that's a question that I really haven't uh, fleshed out. I think the only thing we can kind of really do is go with what we have. Um, you know, I think, one, one thing that I've noticed is that you have a lot of uh, ancient uh, comedic 
also known as Egyptian sources that we can use. Um, there are other sources we can use, but I think it's kind of hard to kind of pinpoint how far back uh, we should go. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a question I think kind of really need to wrestle with a little bit more. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. That, that, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, now, I, I'm trying to understand. Okay. The other day I was interviewing um, a guy, I think a professor in the U.S. Then I was saying, I was talking about the importance of collaboration between uh, African scholars and Western scholars. In this case, U.S. Uh, scholar. Uh, in that, there is a lot of things that is actually going on within African history and African reality that is sort of bizarre almost, no? Okay, let me explain what I mean. Uh, up until recently, if we in Africa need to know anything about uh, African diaspora, which is the other part of Africa that are not in Africa, we need to know this uh, through the Europeans. And if those, say, African city diaspora want to know anything, particularly those uh, that are be a victim of slavery and have, have a kind of a direct connection with Africa, uh, they will need to know about Africa through also the lenses of the European. And this has placed the European at an advantageous position. And this helped them to sort of play us a lot. In the, they can tell you what they want to tell you about me, and they can tell me what they want to tell me about you, which means you don't know me, I don't know you, so we become sort of um, uh, alien to each other. But we are not supposed to be like that. And that makes it very difficult to know who we are. But this is 2023. We have internet, we have uh, a lot of resources. I'm trying to understand how much collaboration should take place between even uh, U.S. universities and uh, universities in Nigeria or in Ghana or in Sierra Leone or in South Africa or in Kenya or in Congo should take place if we are talking about African history. How much collaboration should take place so that we can have enough raw materials to analyze our history? Because again, I want to repeat, Europeans cannot teach African history. They never had the intention to do that. They will never do that, not even in a million years. So if we want to know about our root, which is Africa, because if we think about the root word, African diaspora, we take away Africa, the diaspora doesn't make any sense. So it means that we need to do the raw work, the hard work, the digging to learn about us. So how much should collaboration play in this part? I think collaboration is vitally important um, just to kind of combat the ways in which um, Africans on the continent may view uh, Africans throughout the diaspora and vice versa. Um, and so I think just it's important to collaborate to kind of just tear down those uh, misconceptions because there are a lot of misconceptions on both sides um so i think it's important and it's important also to have this exchange of ideas and knowledge where each uh can pour into the other um and i think just really i think the whole idea of collaboration can really tear down the idea of um opposition so that it really becomes this idea of we're brothers and sisters because you know ultimately we really are um, and so I think it's important to uh, collaborate. And I noticed that, you know, in some circles you have uh, continental African universities collaborating uh, with institutes here in the United States, just in different places. Um, but I think it's, it's vitally important and that, uh, that that collaboration will help to kind of 
bridge the gaps if you you know that exist um because of this uh this this these false ideas that have been kind of perpetuated uh from uh eurocentric scholarship mm -hmm. all right then i would like to remain there for another few seconds um now let's look at you for example uh a scholar in the diaspora okay in the united states uh who is doing um african study uh now let's say you want uh, materials from Africa to sort of elaborate on your studies or to expatiate on your argument because perhaps you have students who want to know about Africa. Uh, what material would you need in Africa? Because, okay, materials will be, okay, in the context of or his, of history in this case, we need the we need to talk about maybe the experiences of the people who have been there. Uh, this experience might be maybe in the form of language linguistics, in the form of I don't know, or economy, or uh, in the temp in terms of war, in terms of um, uh, culture, in terms of a kind of uh, uh, refiguration of different things. Which material would you need? So I'm I'm just I sort of throwing it out there. Some of the things that just come to my mind. But I'm not a historian. Okay, as an expert in this area, what would you need uh, to be able to make your argument as an African? Uh, of an African historian expert in this area? So I think just kind of answering that question kind of depends on uh, what's being studied. So I guess just in my, in my research, so I guess maybe if I can look at, just take, for example, my work on Thurman. So I did, you know, continue to look at his philosophies um, and just kind of the ways in which he, um, ways in which he saw community. So just for example, um, one thing, if I'm looking at Thurman, it would also be helpful to look and see uh, the works of continental African philosophers. Um, just to kind of give that, that comparison uh, to Thurman as an African-American philosopher uh, and theologian, then I could also look at the works of continental African philosophers and theologians. And it's interesting that you kind of bring that up because as I was doing my lit review, for my dissertation, I noticed that the works that I was looking at or looking for just kind of some background on uh, African descended philosophers, there were a lot of uh, gaps in the literature. There's some work out there on on that, but not as much as should be. So I guess just for example, I would want to look at and get information on continental African philosophers. So I would need uh, information along those lines. So just kind of an example to be able to answer that question. Mm -hmm. All right. Th thank you for that. I really, I really appreciate that. You see, I'm asking those questions because I'm sort of uh, throwing it out there also for African scholars. Because uh, I often say here that what have happened to African diaspora have happened to Africa too. In that time, or still now, when the European was played the middleman between African and the African diaspora, uh, they choose what they want to tell us. In that, for example, for many Africans, they were told that their history started from colonialism, because that was that would be a, an important part of our engagement between African and, and Europe. And to African leaders, but particularly those who have been victim of slavery, they have been told that their beginning, their history, therefore, started from slavery, which means everything before that is nothing. Uh, that is pretty <laughs> harsh, no? Uh, because now. I just made mention of language and culture, no? 
If we take up any language in Africa, any language, say maybe Igbo, for example, which is a uh, language that is spoken um, in Eastern Nigeria, this language is dated back to several thousands of years. And if, if they have been spoken for several thousands of years, meaning that there have been a kind of interaction, and it has, it has not been spoken the same way that modified for several years now, with me, who have been speaking these languages? If it have been spoken, how have it been spoken? In what context? What have it been used for? Okay, what about war? The war that have been fought in different parts of Africa, several thousands of years, many of them, empire that have been built, but who have these people been engaging with? We talk about, for example, just war. I'm coming from Edo State in the south of Nigeria. In my state, for example, we have what is known as the Benin War. The Benin War is, is said to have been longer than the wars of China. What is a war? A war usually is a barrier that stands between two objects, stands between two, two people in this sense, no? In that there is a, 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 an empire that is a city, let's call it like that, no? Uh, now, why would you build a war? If you are building a war because there is something that needs to be protected inside the war. Okay, that also explains that there is something that needs to be defended against outside the war. Which means, if the Benin Empire was strong, it means there was an equally strong people outside of Benin that could evade. Which means, the Benin were, in, were interacting, were engaging, were having war with other people that were equally strong. Because if they were not strong enough, there was no need to build the war. So, by making, by taking out those these few elements, we can already understand that the story that the European told us doesn't hold, does not stand. No. Now, <laughs> I'm trying to uh, uh, say that the Africans in Africa need to tell this story to help their the Africans that are outside of Africa to have a better understanding of what is happening or what has happen in Africa. Because the story, again, is deep. It's not as simple as just numbers. So this is where I'm trying to go there by trying to say, okay, what do we need? What material do we need? Because as far as I can understand, very little has actually been done in digging up the stories from Africa outside of what we have been told after we have become the European prisoners of war. Because we have told that we don't have anything, we don't know anything, but what we have in evidence does not support that. Which means we need to rewrite it again. We need to rewrite the story again. But who is going to do that is us again. So that is why I'm, I'm sort of asking, what do we need to do to be able to tell this story? So now, um, Africans in Africa need to tell the story from their point of view. And those also in outside need to tell the story from their point of view. And we need to put the two together to make the story. I don't know if I'm making sense there. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, and it just kind of goes back to the idea of the importance of uh, collaboration, you know, kind of the point that you made in terms of uh, how continental African scholars and, for example, U.S.-based African descendant scholars work together. So I think there just needs to be this idea of collaboration, telling stories, each one tell their story to dispel these um, Eurocentric myths of where our histories actually started. And so I think it's just vitally important that, like you said, just for the stories to be told and for us to work together. All right. Thank you so much for that. I would like to talk about the, the philosophy uh, uh, of, um, of Hornwood, the one that you were referring before. 
I don't know if you want to uh, say something about it, say something more about it of uh, Homeworld Thurman. Sure. So I can just kind of talk about um, Thurman. So I think what, what's important to know about Thurman is a lot of people may not be familiar with him, but he directly influenced Dr. Martin Luther King. So Martin Luther King actually carried a copy of Thurman Jesus and disinherited with him. And so Howard Thurman really was driven by these ideas of community. And he saw uh, community um, and togetherness as just really this method of fighting against uh, racism and segregation. Um, and so his idea was that really in order to dispel this hatred that kind of is at the root of racism and segregation, there needs to be this idea of community. Um, and then also what he kind of, what he really had an idea of for African descended people in America is that we're not defined by our oppression. So he really had this idea of, um, even though there's oppression and segregation and racism, we're not defined by that. And to not necessarily treat um, this mistreatment with hatred towards whites, but also have this ethic of, of love, which he saw as really, um, being able to combat that. And so there's so much with Thurman that can be talked about, but just kind of an essence of time. That's kind of some of his main, um, some of his main uh, points. And also he had this whole idea of, uh, he's known as a mystic. And so this idea of getting along with God in order to have this um, better relationship, these ideas of solitude, but he did not necessarily see solitude as just the way people should live. He kind of believed in this idea of mysticism as this time of refreshing to be able to come back to your communities and come back to others in order to um, to really build these ideas of community to kind of combat racism. Mm, that's very interesting. Uh, there is an episode, there is a series we do here, we call it Life and Legacy, where we take up the individual in our history and examine who they are, uh, what they have passed through and what we can learn from them. Uh, but anyway, maybe that, on another occasion, we should be able to talk about uh, this individual. How do you approach uh, your research? Uh, say maybe, for example, um, you, you pick this individual, no? uh, Homeworld Thurman. Uh, that is the, the individual you wrote about in your dissertation, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, why did you do that? Why, why was uh, that person, that personality in history, the person that you wanted to write about? So just honestly... So I, it's, it's funny that you kind of bring that up. So I really hadn't heard of Thurman until I took a class towards the end of my coursework uh, with uh, Dr. Asante. And he mentioned Howard Thurman. So the class was African philosophical thought. And so just even hear about Thurman, I was really intrigued. Um, just kind of where he was coming from, some of the ideas that he had. Um, and just kind of looking at what was out there, I really had not seen anything that really focused on Thurman and looked at him um, by using Afrocentric methodology. Uh, so honestly, I, I wanted to do that because I hadn't really seen anything on him from that viewpoint. And I was really interested to find out um, whether or not he could necessarily be located uh, as an Afrocentric uh, philosopher. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, Howard Thurman uh, was also an activist, correct? Yes. Yeah, so he was a Activist and uh, theologian. Uh, okay, activist and theologian. Uh, what would you want to say about um, uh, his um, 
activism and because I, I really want us to spend some time talking about because I, I understand that you also like about you like the idea of activism, political activism and things like that. Is that correct? Yeah, yes, yes. Ah, okay. Do you want to say more uh, say something more about that? Um so yeah, just just even talking about Thurman and his political activism, what he he did a lot of his activism not necessarily on the front lines of protesting, but he used his uh work as a theologian, a lot of his sermons um and through his writing. So he was not necessarily, I would say, a frontline political activist, but he was still an activist. Um, and so he used his background as a theologian to really pull out uh, some biblical principles in terms of why he wanted to bring these issues of racism and segregation to the forefront in order to combat them. Um, and he pulled out a lot in terms of his sermons um, in order to really combat that. And so what he did in terms of his activism was as he fought for these ideas of equality, he really pushed forth this idea of community. Um, and so this idea of community was central to his idea as a political activist. And so just for example, he founded uh, in San Francisco, the Church for Fellowship of All Peoples. So this whole idea of all people uh, belonging, everyone being uh, a part of the conversation, everyone being able to have a seat at the table was central to his idea as a political activist. Because if you pull together this idea of community, all people, everyone um, together, that's what he used to really fight these ideas of segregation. So if you have uh, this mutual respect, this mutual commonality, in his idea, there's no way that you can have segregation at the same time. So he really positioned himself as a political activist, but not necessarily what we see on the front lines of protesting, but um, through his work as a theologian and as a writer. So I th think that's just kind of where I'm interested in him uh, as this intellectual activist. Now, we, we also see him as a, as a philosopher, sort of. Uh, we have some philosophical thought uh, because you did make mention of uh, exploring the idea of solitude just now and uh, to to sort of not, not be seen as a negative thing. That is what you were talking about just now, right? Yes. Do, do we know where uh, Thurman got those ideas from? How could we develop, how did he develop those ideas? Um, so that, what do we learn about about where he got those ideas from? So he, so for the research that I've done, um, he really got this whole idea of solitude from, uh, the idea of mysticism. And I believe he looked at some of the works of uh, Moltmann, Jürgen Moltmann, who was a German, uh, if I'm not mistaken, theologian, but also had some um, ideas of mysticism there. So he kind of really got a little bit of that from this this whole idea of mysticism where one, again, goes away has this uh, idea of contemplation, getting along with God, um, ability to pull away and have solitude in order to kind of deepen their relationship with God, which once one comes out of that um, time of contemplation should enable them to go back to uh, their communities in order to uh, effect change. So this idea of mysticism kind of came from or solitude kind of came from some of the people that he studied in terms of mysticism. How would you describe um, the state of civil rights today in the United States or 
uh, political activism as it were to get people more involved in what is happening uh, from the political spectrum? That's a great question. So kind of what I've seen, um, I think it kind of like ebbs and flows. Of course, there was this uptick um, with a lot of the police brutality, police killings we saw, um, especially with the murder of George Floyd. Um, but I think, honestly, sometimes people can be disillusioned um, because a lot of times if you look at some of the things that uh, more recently people are fighting for, some of the younger generation may feel like, what's the point? So I feel that it's it's still there. Again, just this uptick. You kind of saw we saw a lot of the uptick during the protests in 2020. But um, I think sometimes some of the younger generation may be uh, disillusioned. But I think it, it's important to continue that because there's still a lot that needs to be uh, fought for. And I also kind of think one way that's kind of uh, kind of shaped civil rights today is the social media. You have TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, um, which kind of helps to uh, propel that. So I think it's still still in development. Um, I think just kind of the ways in which the younger generations can kind of put their input as well is important to look at. Mm -hmm. So when you see the younger generation today uh, aligned with uh, what have happened before, uh, celebrity, for example, uh, the movement of uh, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, looking at uh, Rosa Parks and the rest of them, of course, these are, these are not the only people uh, that actually stood up um, to for a change in the society we can look at michael mess you can look at a lot of them of course people have different approach to the situation because everybody did not suffer the same exactly the same thing from the same people or uh, the same masters no yeah. uh, so of course the approach of how to respond to the situation the brutality of uh, a white european in the united states uh, is not going to be the same anyway so when you look at the younger generation of, uh, of Americans today, particularly the African-Americans, uh, in relation to those movements that have passed, what comes to your mind? So I think one thing that I see is that some of the younger generation looks at the civil rights movement, for example, kind of in the same way that the uh, Black Power movement, which came directly after it, looks at it. Um, and some of the younger generation looks at those civil rights movements uh, leaders and kind of says, well, did it really work? And so that was kind of the uh, idea of the Black Power Movement, like the nonviolent activism necessarily, in their idea, didn't necessarily work. So I think some of the younger generation is saying, well, what they did was great, but some of the methods that they did didn't necessarily uh, work. So I think some of the younger generation kind of sees the need for a more, um, I guess, more militant stance. Um, and so, because if, if you kind of look at the ways in which uh, they kind of um, presented and fought during the, a lot of the police killings, police brutality and George Floyd uh, murder, um, I think the younger generation kind of shifts away from the ways that Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, et cetera, uh, promoted uh, civil rights and the civil rights movement. Okay, the other day I was interviewing um, uh, my historian. We're looking at the independence, uh, the, the the movement toward independence in Africa in the 1950s, 1960s, and um, the idea that actually powered some of those movements. Of course, we can look at names like uh, Kwame Krumah and the rest. 
Sometimes I was asking, okay, I was interviewing a guy who was in the government of Kwame Krumah uh, before he was overthrown. Then I was asking him a very simple and direct question. Did the people of Ghana understood the idea that was being preached to them by Kwame Krumah? Did they understand what he meant by Pan-Africanism? Because if they understood it, they would have taken a different action. Because we see Kwame Krumah being overthrown now, and the Ghanaian people didn't do very much to resist those who came in. I understand. I'm not ignorant of the fact that the CIA could have been very happy or could have directly uh, intervened in getting Krumah out because Krumah was going to <laughs> Vietnam uh, to, eh, to negotiate between uh, the war that was taking place uh, in the Vietnam War. So we understand all this, all this no? Uh, but the, the local people, the Ghanaian people, of course, had a big role to play if they wanted a change. And of course, they would be able to take this step if they got the idea, if they got the message that was coming for Kwame. So what I'm actually trying to say there is that um, as we got the so-called independence, because, okay, the independence that we got in Africa is not really independent as it were. No, we, okay, let's pretend that we are independent, we are free. People... The idea that led to that freedom sort of died down. So everybody realized, okay, we are now free. But the life that we are living today in Africa, in, many, in any African country that you pick up, is the same. It's different from what we were aspiring for in 1950s, moving to 1960s, where most of African countries were actually free. And this is the same thing if we take it to the diaspora take it to the United States particularly, uh, in that when Martin Luther King said, I went to the mountain, I believe that he wanted a different kind of country than the United States will have later, uh, where the brutality basically still continues. Okay, I understand the lynching has stopped and all that. So why did the march stop? That is actually the question. Because the march stopped in Africa. It stopped also in the African diaspora. It appeared as if Everything died down because, okay, it appeared as if we are free, but we are not free. We didn't get what we want, okay? Uh, the European actually retired from being the, the head of the, of the imperial system, but they planted people in place to sort of work, continue to work in the shadow, no? So why did the people stop? Did they get the message? Did they understand what the founding father was asking for and what they eventually got? That is the question. Well, that's a great question. So I think it's important to note in some aspects, the marches haven't stopped. Well, they kind of pause and then again in early part of the 2015, 16 and leading up to George Floyd, uh, after George Floyd's murder, the marches, you saw a lot of marches. But I think just in that period, uh, kind of in between that, you can kind of point to just the shift in uh, from the civil rights movement to the Black Power movement, and kind of what the Black Power movement looked at was that uh, we have all these marches and these nonviolent protests, but where is it getting us? Um, and so I think some, in some instances, the marches stopped because uh, in some circles, people felt that it wasn't necessarily uh, doing anything. But then also you have these, this element of complacency because um, you know, in some instances, especially in the United States, African-Americans in some circles did kind of do better uh, economically. So then you have this element of complacency where some um, specifically African-Americans said, well, things are fine. Things are better. We don't have to march. But then I think 
you know, when you had like Michael Brown and Sandra Bland being killed and George Floyd, um, people realized that there's still a problem and there's still things that need to be addressed. So then you kind of saw the resurgence of these uh, marches and protests. So I don't know that they would necessarily, they kind of pause, um, but I don't know that really say that they stopped. It kind of just depends on the viewpoint of, um, yeah, pretty much how people view the place of African-Americans kind of determines the, the element of protest. You see, now, as we were talking, talking of uh, looking at uh, maybe that life is better, we can say life is better today, but I'm trying to understand the objective, for example. Uh, okay, I understand that in Africa, then we had, um, okay, we still have today strong men. People are very, very strong, but very few, very few of them. They are very strong. They can do anything, um, but the people are very weak. The African population are weak. They don't have powers. They, they are not able to hold their government accountable, which is another part of the world, like in Europe. I, I live in Europe now. Okay, there are also some big state mafias in European countries. But of course, the difference is so, is so big, no? It that the people, the government respond to the people. In Africa, the government do not respond to the people. Which means that was not the government we wanted. The governments in Africa have been hijacked. They are still working for the metropole. They are working for the European government. So the African citizenship is, is I don't want to say it's a hose. We are not citizens of our country. We are just slaves in our country. So they can do whatever they like to us. So what I'm saying is that for the people to really, for we to say we have arrived, the people need to arrive, not just few individuals, not just the strong men, because the strong men are not helping us. In Africa, the strong men are not happy. We want African people to be strong. Currently, as it stands, African people are weak, but few men are strong. So I don't know if there is any sense that we can make out of that, looking at it from the point of view of history, from where we are coming from. Help me. Yeah, that, that, makes, that makes sense. Also, I think just kind of to your point of asking um, regarding African-Americans, you have pockets of African-Americans who are extremely wealthy, but not everyone is wealthy. Um, you have, say, if you look at Oprah Winfrey, who's the, if not the most, uh, the, the richest woman in, Amer in, in the world, if I'm not mistaken, or along those lines. But then you still have um, African-Americans who are living in extreme poverty. And so I think even to that point of kind of when you were going back to uh, the idea of, is it possible for African-Americans, someone um, wealthy to have a ship like uh, Garvey's uh, Black Star Line? I, I, the money's there, but I don't know if the um, will is there. So you have a wealthy African-Americans uh, who would have the funds to finance that, but the question is whether or not they'd be willing to do so, to part with uh, that element of their money to do so. Um, and so while undoubtedly African-Americans have increased uh, just in uh, personal wealth and well-being and things like that, there's still a lot that needs to uh, be done. And I think also just kind of looking back the ways that um, African-Americans, for example, are kind of still behind because uh, since enslavement ended, there's only been maybe 150 something years that we've actually been uh, legally free. Um, and so just even the ways that African-Americans are behind 
um, in terms of being able to build generational wealth. Um, so there's there's a lot there's a lot in that in that uh, in that statement, and I, I totally agree that in order for African people specifically to be really free, you have to have this element of those who are willing to uh, take their their money and take their resources to really upbuild uh, those who are not able to have access to that uh, level of wealth. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Eva. Um, now, I was saying before that I wanted to ask you something relating to Afrocentricism. I, I, I think maybe people would want to understand how you would describe that. What do you say about that? So Afrocentricity really, I mean, this basically it's, it's, a, it's centering African descended people at the center of their uh, analysis about their experiences. So I think just kind of what we talked about earlier and just the ways in which um, the stories of continental Africans has been told from a Eurocentric viewpoint um, and how the stories of African-Americans have been told from a Eurocentric viewpoint with this idea of history only beginning um, after colonialism or history only beginning uh, once enslaved Africans arrived. Um, and so really what Afrocentricity kind of really seeks to do is center African people at the center of their analysis and not necessarily looking at them from the way Europe tells the story, but how do they tell the story? And so just really um, valuing the experiences of African people, varying African people's culture, um, and not allowing Europe or European uh, worldviews to really tell their stories. Uh -huh. Are we supposed to promote this idea among Africans, particularly the younger generation of Africans, to, to understand that they need to see reality through their own lenses? Because I repeat again, uh, we cannot see the lenses, we cannot see life, life or reality through the lenses of other people. It is, it is putting us at a disadvantage. But how do we preach that idea? How do we say that idea, particularly to younger people who have the tools of the age, like the internet, so that they go out to search for information that they want to search for. They need to look for the information that they want to look for. They see what they want to see through their own lenses. I know that might not be very simple, but that is what we need to do. How do we make sure that people understand that? So I think it really starts just with um, telling young people, I think you just kind of have to start at the root of the history of um, African descended people. So I guess just for example, you know, a lot of young people here in the United States believe that uh, the history of their ancestors began at enslavement and not necessarily this ideas of a rich culture, rich history, um, that existed prior to that. And even the ways in which African-Americans have kind of uh, basically be become their own ethnic group with a unique history, unique culture. And so I think you really have to start with telling young people that um, African people's, African descended people's history and culture is rich. Just kind of combating what they they may have heard uh, about stereotypes about Africa, stereotypes about African descended people. And even stereotypes about other people in their community. So you kind of have to start with just that promoting the 
richness and the beauty of um, African people and the culture of African descended people. Thank you so much for that conversation. I really appreciate it. So how would you conclude the, the conversation that we have had today? What would be your final message? Um, yeah, please go ahead and do that. So uh, thank you so much. It was wonderful, um, wonderful coming on here and talking to you. So I think just one way that I would conclude is just to say that the history of African descended people and investigating um, African descended people is an ongoing project. So it, it, it it's nuanced. It doesn't necessarily just look like one thing, but I think it's important to note that it's an ongoing project and that overall um, Africana people have a rich, deep and beautiful culture that is worth uh, valuing and exploring. Thank you so much for that, dear Eva. I appreciate the conversation. I really have been very rich here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate and review Overhead Podcast and share with your friends who might need it. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in the next episode.